Uh, If you have your copy of the scriptures or uh, if you have a bulletin, I'd encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to continue our look at the study of Ephesians. Um, While you're turning there, I want you to think about the word imitation for a second. Uh, You've heard the uh, quote out there that says, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And so we see imitation all the time. We see young athletes that are uh, intentionally imitating a favorite athlete that they look up to. Uh, Sometimes we see older couples that the more decades they spend with one another, uh, they actually start to physically resemble one another. Have you ever seen this before? That they physically begin to resemble one another because their mannerisms uh, become so similar. Uh, You might see in a school context a a freshman in high school or a freshman in college uh, starting to pattern their style and pattern their clothing off the seniors that they really look up to. And so uh, imitation is really everywhere. We all do it. Everybody does it. And there's a lot of voices in our culture that actually say imitation is a really bad thing. Uh, You'll hear phrases like, well, you do you, or uh, you be unique, you be yourself, be an individual, don't uh, conform to other people's standards or expectations. And so when we come to the scriptures, we really see that the scriptures actually talk a lot about imitation as well, and our passage does this morning. The scriptures show us that imitation can be a good thing, and it could be a bad thing. We all do it, it could be good, or it can be bad. And so in this uh, second half of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, he establishes that what you imitate is actually what matters. He argues that we ought not to pattern our life around the broken and futile practices of the world that are around us. Instead, we are to be imitators of God. And what does that look like? How do we be imitators of God? Well, Paul says, look to Jesus and you'll find out what that means. So this morning I'm going to be reading uh, from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 uh, through 21. So uh, follow along as we read God's word. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God." Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. 
But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks that your spirit uses it to shape our hearts. So we pray that as we meditate on your word in the next few moments, that your spirit would visit us with his presence, that we may be shaped and molded more and more into your image. May the good news of the gospel shine brightly into our hearts, maybe for the first time, maybe for the millionth time, but either way, as the words of the gospel are shined into our hearts, may you continue to foster life in us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Paul, in this uh, section of uh, Ephesians, is doing something that we've seen him do a lot in this book, and that is he's making a very sharp contrast uh, so that we can all see it very clearly. And essentially what he's saying in this section is that there are two ways for us to live our lives. We can live our lives uh, centered on ourselves, and this is a life of self-indulgence. Or we can live our lives centered on Christ, and if we do, that becomes a life that is characterized by self-sacrifice. So on one hand, you have a life of self-indulgence. On the other hand, you have a life of self-sacrifice. So let's first look at that first path that Paul talks about, and that is a life of self-indulgence. Now, I'm sure you've been paying attention a little bit to the news this week, and there's been a lot going on the news, especially in the political realm. Uh, It's been a week of political grandstanding, uh, both locally and certainly on uh, the national scale. And so if you've been paying attention, there's been lots of uh, impassioned speeches in the political world. Uh, Those speeches try to establish a high moral ground. Uh, There's been uh, handshake snubs. There's been torn up speeches. Uh, There's been flaunted newspaper headlines. It has been quite a week politically. And it leaves us all, if you're like me, it sort of leaves you asking a couple questions. You wonder, are these gestures that we've seen politically, uh, are they coming from a place of uh, conviction? Are they coming from a place of consciences that have been pricked and uh, therefore we need to speak up and we need to address these things? Or are they coming from a different place? Are they coming because there is a desire for political gain? Is this all about a grab for power? Now, the idealist in me likes to say that it all comes from a place of conscience and it all comes from a good place of conviction. But the cynic in me says something different. Uh, The cynic in me says it comes from a self-indulgent desire. 
And usually I have to confess that the cynical voice, when it, especially when it comes to politics, uh, that the cynical voice tends to be the louder voice. And why is that? Why do we immediately go to that place? Well, I think it's probably because so many of the motives that stand behind so many of the things that happen in our world, so many of those motives are fueled by self-indulgence. And so I think as we look at the world, we can concede that that's often true. But I also know it's true because it's true of my own heart. I know so often that my desires are driven purely for myself and my own personal gain. Self-indulgence, after all, is all about me. It seeks to manipulate and control other people so that you and I can get what we want. Our desires, our wants, the things that we deeply desire and want, those are the things that uh, simply rule the day and everybody else needs to just get on board with our plan and our purposes. The Apostle Paul talks about how this self-indulgent lifestyle is manifested. And he talks about it on several fronts. The first front in which it is manifested, and it's surprising that Paul goes here first, but he speaks of sexual self-indulgence in this passage. Look at verse 3. He says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. And so if you're paying attention, you notice that Paul, throughout this passage in a couple of places, talks about this sort of disordered sexuality. He mentions it a lot here. Uh, He mentions it a lot in several of his other epistles as well. But it was particularly important for this church. If you remember, uh, the church in Ephesus was in uh, this city, and this city was known for its worship of the goddess Artemis. And so there was a big temple uh, to the goddess of Artemis in the center of the city of Ephesus. Um, The entire economy was built around uh, the worship of this goddess of Artemis. Uh, But if you're paying attention in your history classes, you'll know that the goddess Artemis was the goddess of fertility. And so all sorts of sexual practices were often associated with the city of Ephesus. Uh, Things like prostitution, they were rampant all throughout the city. Uh, There was all sorts of other extremes in terms of sexual practice in Ephesus. Uh, if If you look at the history about it, there's even stuff here that would make you and I, even in our culture today, stuff here that would make us us certainly uh, blush and certainly bristle because of how extreme it was. And so these Christians in the church of Ephesus are confronted with these sexual practices and this sexual lifestyle and an economy built around these sorts of things, they would be surrounded by this every single day. And so how should they respond? How should they act in light of a sexualized, a hyper-sexualized culture that was in Ephesus? Well, Paul says to put this sort of immoral self-indulgence, put it away. Don't live that way. Put it all away. Now, I want to be careful here because Paul doesn't say that sexuality itself is immoral. And I think Christians and Christian history over the years have gotten this wrong at times. 
Because I think the scriptures establish that sexuality within God's design is a wonderful and great gift. But don't miss what Paul is saying here. If that sexuality is motivated by self-indulgence, if it is motivated purely by self, then it becomes immoral. That's what Paul establishes here. He then moves on to speak about another type of self-indulgence, and that is material self-indulgence. He says twice in verse 3 and 5, he talks about this idea of covetousness, and that is the, the disordered desire for people and things. What that looks like is that we work. We work really hard, but we work really hard just for us. Or maybe we date and marry, maybe we court, maybe we do all sorts of relationships only for ourselves and only for our own personal fulfillment. Or maybe that covetousness takes place in accumulation. All we care about is accumulating things for ourselves. Jesus talked about this in Luke chapter 12. Do you remember this story when he talked about the rich fool? He told a parable about a, a rich fool who had uh, accumulated a lot of things, and so he decides that he's going to build bigger barns so that he can accumulate more things and hold more and more of his stuff. He believes that if he just accumulates a little bit more, just has one bigger barn, then he's finally going to be happy. He's finally going to be self-fulfilled. And so what does Jesus call him? He says he is a fool. His material self-indulgence has made him into a fool. Je Jesus, even before he, he tells that story, even before he tells that parable, he says this, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. A life that is lived for material self-indulgence is the path of the fool. So that's what Paul establishes here. He talks about a sexual self-indulgence, a material self-indulgence, and then he moves on to talk about self-indulgence in our speech, in the things that we say. He says in verse 4, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. If you were with us last week, we talked about this. We talked about how our speech often is the thing that reflects what is going on in our hearts. So if you want to know what's going on in your heart, then look at the words that come out of your mouth. And so if your lifestyle is one of self-orientation, then it'll be reflected in your speech. So, so if you're wondering, what, what does your speech look like? Do you talk only ever about yourself? Well, that probably indicates that you are living a self-indulgent lifestyle. I think Paul wants us to see, and this is something we see all throughout the scriptures, is that not only does our speech reflect our self-indulgence, but it can be a very powerful weapon used for our self-indulgence as well. We can use our speech to manipulate and control other people according to our own desire, according to our own will. But Paul says there's other destructive elements of speech as well. He encourages the Ephesians to put away filthiness, to put away foolishness, to put away crude joking. 
And I, of course, immediately thought of my high school and college self and wondered I should have heeded these words in high school and college. And so Paul finally then moves on to remind the Ephesians of where this sort of lifestyle leads. What is the end of it? He says in verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul says, remember where this path leads. Remember where this lifestyle ends up. The path itself is an empty path. It promises a lot, but it delivers little. And remember where it leads. It leads to destruction. So Paul says to these Christians, you once lived in that way. And so now be, don't, deceive, don't be deceived by it again. Don't fall back into that lifestyle. Remember where it leads. See, I think Paul understood that the prevailing motive behind his culture was self-indulgence. And I think if we're probably honest with ourselves, we would admit that the prevailing motive behind our culture today as well is probably this selfish self-indulgence as well. In fact, I would argue that ever since Adam and Eve ate from that fruit, every culture since then has been centered around self and self-indulgence. This is the drumbeat of our world. And so Paul says, don't forget, live by a different drummer. Live in a different way. Instead of living for self-indulgence, instead live a life of self-sacrifice. Listen to verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus not only gave himself up for you, but he also in doing so showed you how we ought to live. He shows us the path of life. He shows us that we are to be people who live self-sacrificially. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's great, but what on earth does that look like? I see so few examples of that in my life. What on earth does that look like? Who on earth lives this sort of way? And that's why Paul says, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, imitate him, imitate the way he lived his life. Because as you look at Jesus, you see that Jesus only ever lived for the sake of others. Just think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, that last few nights of his life here on earth. Think of him as he repeatedly came before the Father in distress, wondering, is there any other way? Think of the, the tears and the stress that poured from him as he considered the path of the cross that lied before him. Think of the temptation he must have felt to live self-indulgently, to take an easier path. But instead, because his life was built around self-sacrifice, he walked that path. He recognized that it was the will of God to crush him. And so Jesus willingly walked that path for you and I. And what he establishes is this, that if we are to be his people, then we are called to walk that same path 
of self-sacrifice. He gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering, as a sacrifice to God, and so to follow him is to walk that same path. Paul says something very curious, I think, here in verse 7, and I think it's important that we talk about it. He says in verse 7, therefore do not become partners with them. Don't become partners with them. Some have interpreted this to say that we should not associate at all with those people who don't know Christ, that we should somehow distance ourselves from them and the rest of the world, that we should somehow cloister ourselves in some sort of holy huddle. But I don't really think that's Paul's meaning here at all. I think he's trying to establish that followers of Jesus are certainly not to participate in a lifestyle or practices that come from sinful self-indulgence. But we should not run from the rest of the world. We should not silo ourselves off because if we did, we would not be able to do the things that Paul calls us to do later on in this passage. Look at the second half of verse eight. He says, walk as children of the light For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and in true. And now verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Paul's echoing two scriptural themes here. One is this important and recurring image that we see all throughout the entire New Testament that says Christians are to be a light. Christians are to be a light in this world. And so that by nature means that light shines into darkness. Its point is not to be covered. Its point is not to be hidden. You and I, we are called to expose the darkness with the light of Christ. The other image Paul uses here is that Christians have been gifted with the wisdom of God. And what this wisdom is, is that Christians are given a true reading of the reality of our world and our culture, a true reading that rejects the falsehood that is all around us. And so, Christian, you and I, we are called to expose the foolishness of the world by living according to the wisdom of God. But you might be asking, again, how do we do all that? How do we be a light that exposes darkness? How do we be people defined by the wisdom of God and and not fall into the foolishness that is around us? How in the world do we do that? Well, we do that by looking to Jesus, by, by imitating him, but even then, what does that look like? Well, I think Paul gives us two sort of understandings of what that looks like. I think it looks like lives that are characterized by two things. One, gratitude, and two, celebration. Look at verses 18 to 20, and there's so much packed in here that we could talk about, but we don't have the time. But verse 20 says this, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What Paul's arguing here is that it is our gratitude and our celebration that most shines light into the darkness that is around us. It is our gratitude and our celebration that most exposes the foolishness of the world that is around us. And so what Paul is saying here is that we don't shout truth from a safe distance. We don't 
call down truth from our ivory tower. We also don't get caught up in a lifestyle of ungratefulness or a complaining pattern. We don't get caught up in a holy, dour sort of grumpiness. Instead, we are called to celebrate with gratitude what Jesus has done for us, to celebrate, to be on display, to recognize that he submitted himself to the will of the Father, and we get to submit ourselves to one another. It's not that we even have to, it's that we get to. We get to submit ourselves to one another. We reject a lifestyle of self-indulgence. We live a life of self-sacrifice. Now, initially, initially that doesn't sound very fun, does it? To only always live for other people? Uh, That's my selfishness looking at that and saying, man, that doesn't sound very fun. That doesn't sound like a very fun way to live, to be always living for the sake of other people. But that is exactly what is so counterintuitive about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the path of self-sacrifice itself is the path of gratitude. It is the path of celebration. And so what does all this mean? It means this, that God calls us to be the most grateful people that we know. We should be the most grateful people that we know. But we should also be the most celebratory people that we know as well. You should be the most celebratory person that you know because after all, there is much to be grateful in our relationship with Jesus Christ. There is much for us to celebrate in Jesus. Let's pray.